Hello and welcome to A History of Alexander the Great Remastered Episode 11 Opideos Alexander was in Alexandria during the winter of 332-331 I've said that Alexander was impulsive deciding to build the Mediterranean's greatest trade city Now, after completing this he decides he wants to travel to an oasis in the middle of the desert. Now, the obvious question is, why? This particular oasis possessed something special, an oracle, and not just any oracle. In the ancient world, there were three great oracles. The oracles at Delphi, Dodona, and Siwa. The oracle at Siwa was the oracle of Ammon, the Egyptian counterpart of Zeus. So it was an important location in the ancient world, but it was still hundreds of miles away, and doesn't explain what drove Alexander to do it. Arian suggests that Alexander had heard that Perseus, who killed Medusa, and Heracles had consulted it. Alexander was supposedly descended from both of these, and he longed to equal their fame. Personally, I'm not satisfied with this explanation, so it's lucky that Arian gives a secondary reason. If you remember back to a previous episode, you'll recall that there were rumours that Alexander's real father was Zeus, not Philip. Arian suggests that Alexander was going to find out the truth about his father. This account makes much more sense, Alexander may have been really curious about his parentage, and, if he wasn't, it could be a useful political tool, something historian Michael Wood believes it was. Last week, I spoke of Alexander's genius for being accepted by the local populations, and mentioned that he had been proclaimed pharaoh by the Egyptians. The pharaoh, I'm sure you know, was the son of Amon-Ra, sometimes shortened to either Ammon or Ra. Therefore, it would back this up if he was declared son of Ammon by the oracle. But for you to decide which one of these it was, you need an answer to the question, did Alexander really think he was a god? Unfortunately, there is no answer to this question. You can see how this scenario quickly becomes confusing, and to fully understand it, it may help if we cover the events in question before attaching a meaning to it. From Alexandria, Alexander marched 200 miles along the coast, westward, to the city of what the ancients call Amunia, Paraitonion and Paraitonium, depending on the time period, but what we today call Mersa Matra. While at Mersa Matra, Alexander met with the kings of Libya, the Greek word for Africa, and they surrendered to him and concluded peace and alliance. After this, Alexander turned south into the desert. Let me paint you a picture of the desert. It is huge. You can look around and not see anyone else. There are very few, if any, points of reference, meaning you have to have people who are experts at navigating via the stars and the sun. It is dry. It hardly ever rains in the Sahara, 
meaning you must be very careful with your water rations. And when it does rain, it pours, creating horrific flash floods. There is also the wind, and when it picks up, it creates sandstorms, which could delay travel, if you're lucky. Reportedly, in 524, a sandstorm buried the 50,000-strong army of Cambyses II when he was travelling to Siwa. That is, the same Cambyses who stabbed the Apis. I would advise you to find an image of some of these sandstorms. They are very impressive. I'm sure you're expecting me to say it was hot, and it can get hot in the desert. Temperatures of 57.8 degrees Celsius, that's 136 degrees Fahrenheit, have been reached in the Sahara. But in winter, the time Alexander would have been travelling, temperatures would have been around 20 degrees Celsius, or 68 degrees Fahrenheit. Anyway, the point is, the desert is not a very nice place to be. According to the sources, the gods helped Alexander reach the oracle. As in Arian's own words, what could be more likely? See Arian, Book 3, Chapter 3. The sources say that there were two main problems in reaching the oracle. The shortage of water, and getting lost. The first problem was prevented, as it rained. The second was prevented, as either two snakes, or two birds, led the army across the desert. If an individual, or group, became separated from the main army, they would be led back either by the animals leading them, or making noises to draw them close. Whatever happened, Alexander made it to the oasis. Now it gets odd. Plutarch loves this section, giving it much detail. Yet Arian, who is my preferred source, as he is much more reliable and gives much more detail, gives only one sentence. He put his question to the oracle and received or so he said, the answer which his heart desired. See Arian, Book 3, Chapter 4. What does this mean? The last Arian said about Alexander's motives were wondering about his parents, but it doesn't go into what the oracle said. How very odd. Luckily for us, we have Plutarch. In his account, Alexander wanted to know whether his father's murderers had been brought to justice. At this, the high priest asked him to speak more guardedly, as his father was not a mortal. Alexander then asked whether Philip's murderers had been brought to justice, to which the answer was yes. Alexander then asked whether he was destined to rule over all mankind, to which the answer was yes. After receiving these answers, Alexander made magnificent offerings to Ammon, and presented large sums of money to the priests, which of course had nothing to do with those very favourable answers he had just received. Plutarch does offer different accounts of what happened at Siwa. That Alexander was in some way called immortal is a common theme, but exactly how it happened changes. There is one sourced to Alexander's own letters, in which Alexander says the priests told him secret information 
which he would reveal to Olympias upon his return to Macedonia. We are led to believe that this is the priests confirming his godhood, of course. Then there is a third and final version from Plutarch's account, that it was all a misunderstanding. When the priest greeted him, he addressed him with the Greek phrase, O Padion, which means, O my son. But due to the priest's accent, he mispronounced it, saying, O Padios, which translates as O son of Zeus. Now that we sort of know what happened at the oracle, we can really begin to look into the question, did Alexander think he was a god? Well, let's look into the argument that he did. There had always been rumours that he had been a son of Zeus. This would make him at least a demigod, otherwise known as a hero. Throughout his youth, Alexander had been gifted. He was a great general and possessed great intelligence. He was a bigger-than-life character. Considering that he seemed to be on another level to everyone else, maybe the rumours were true. Maybe he was something more than mortal. In the modern world, this doesn't make sense. If a prime minister or president won a war or created an economic boom or some other notable achievement and then declared themselves a god, you'd think them insane. But the ancient world had different standards. Heracles and Perseus were not legends. They were historical figures. The Iliad was not just a story. It was a history of the Trojan War. Alexander considered it a guidebook in the art of war. In this world, Alexander being a god made sense. To some. I've spoken before about how proud the Greeks were. This difference in personality with the Persians and Egyptians is a crucial part of our story. Darius was a divine king of kings. He was supremely powerful. If the US president, Harry Truman, were in Darius's shoes, he would say, the book stops here. While Alexander was also a king, he was in a completely different situation. He had grown up with the Macedonian nobility, who were his equals. Alexander was the first among equals, but they were equals. So, logically, if the Macedonian nobility were not gods, Alexander was not a god. In contrast, the Egyptians were used to having a divine ruler, and the security it brought. So, Alexander was a god. Are you beginning to see Alexander's problem? If he was a god, or a demigod, then the Greeks and Macedonians would be unhappy. And if he was a mortal, then the Egyptians and Persians would be unhappy. Alexander chose an interesting solution. He would act divine to non-Greeks, but with Greeks and Macedonians, he was more restrained, an equal, not a god. Sometimes, though, he would change his stance. When writing to the Athenians about Samos, he said, I would never have given you that free and glorious city. It was from your master at that time that you received it, and now hold it, my so-called father. 
See Plutarch, Alexander, 28. This shows him disowning Philip as his father. There are other cases when he claimed he was human. When he was wounded by an arrow, he apparently said, What you see flowing, my friends, is blood, not that ichor which flows in the veins of the blessed mortals in heaven. See Plutarch, Alexander, 28. Ichor being what flows in the veins of the gods. So he acted like God, but did he really think it, or was it just a publicity stunt? I think a publicity stunt, but I may well be wrong. I'll move off this topic for now, but before I do, I'll just say that I think it was a publicity stunt, at least to begin with. So, it is the winter of 332-331, and Alexander is in Siwa. He next heads to Memphis, either directly or via Alexandria. If Alexandria had been founded by that point, some think that he founded Alexandria on the return journey. While at Memphis, Alexander received reinforcements from Greece, and it was time to be off again. But first, Egypt needed to be governed. Hopefully, throughout this episode, I've highlighted how important Egypt was, being fabulously wealthy and fertile. Egypt would be a rival to any empire on its own, and thus must be treated differently. Alexander divided political control of the province between Doloaspis and Patesis, who are notable as they are both Egyptians. One would control Upper Egypt and the other Lower Egypt. Under these would be two other governors, prefects if you will, controlling Libya in the west and Arabia towards Heropolis in the west. These would be Apollonius, son of Carinus, and Cleomenes of Naucratis. Cleomenes will appear later in our narrative. Underneath all of these were Macedonian garrison commanders. Anyway, to sum up, rather than giving power to a single Macedonian, Alexander split power into four sources, including natives. This prevented creating an opposing centre of power, that would ensure the loyalty of the Egyptians, while Greek and Macedonian underlings would keep check on them. Smart Alexander. Very smart. Well, this was somewhat ruined when Petesis declined the offer, meaning that Doloaspis received extra power, which really defeats the point. The idea of weakening command in Egypt was one that would stick, though, and this was certainly the inspiration for Augustus placing the province under the control of an equite, rather than a senator, when he conquered it for the Roman Empire. While reorganising the government of Egypt, Alexander began reorganising the government of his empire. For you to understand this, I'm afraid we must venture into Persian and Macedonian government techniques, as well as returning to the reign of Philip. Philip inherited a small, patriarchal monarchy in 359, and over the next 23 years would turn it into a large, complex state. One of the main ways he did this was through imitating aspects of both the Persian military and administration. In 343, 
the new Macedonian province of Thrace was placed under the control of a general, and was very much like a Persian satrapy. The Macedonian chancellery was reorganised along Persian lines. Philip's companions were similar to the Persian king's friends, and Macedonian royal pages helped Philip mount his horse in the Persian manner. Once Alexander launched his campaign in 334 BC, he carried on in the Persian tradition. He did this by, as summed up excellently in a quote from Frederick Roberts, a British field marshal, I feel sure I am right when I say that the less the Afghans see of us, the less they dislike us. See Paul Cartledge, 2004, Alexander the Great, London. Alexander, generally, did not interfere with local law, religion, and culture. He was very respectful. A little too respectful for his countrymen's liking, but it made him greatly admired by his new subjects. Alexander stuck to a satrap mould in his government model. They would collect taxes and recruit mercenaries. This was different in Egypt, but in spring 331, he created a whole new administrative level for tax collection. He gave Macedonians from his central treasury wide-ranging spheres of control, which were nothing like any Achaemenid satrapies. One was put in control of Phoenicia, another of Asia west of the Taurus Mountains, while Cleomenes would have a similar role in Egypt. Still following? I hope so. I'm sorry that wasn't the most exciting piece of history, but it is interesting nonetheless, and should give you a better idea of how Alexander was governing his empire. This mainly serves as an introduction to the subject of governance. We'll finish it off later in the narrative, although that will be much more exciting, as it involves what some historians have dubbed Alexander's Reign of Terror. Alexander made his way north, basing himself in Tyre in 331. It is from here that he will launch himself into the Persian heartland to fight Darius once again. But that will have to wait until the next episode. Right now, we're going to address the situation in Greece, covering the Aegis Revolts. Where were we last in Greece? Pharnabasis, the Persian commander in the region, controlled several islands in the Aegean and the Hellespont. Meanwhile, Aegis III of Sparta was planning war on the mainland, having just taken a significant part of Crete. They wanted to transfer the war to Greece by causing trouble there and cutting off Alexander's supplies. In 331, after years of waiting, they decided now was the time to act. Why was it now the time to act, you ask? It has all to do with a Macedonian general named Zopyrion. Who is Zopyrion, you ask? He was the governor of either Thrace or Pontus. Zopyrion was scared of being sidelined, and decided to launch an invasion of the Scythian tribes to the north. To do this, he collected 30,000 troops and marched north into the Ukraine, besieging the colony of Miletus, Olbia, 
which was allied to the Scythians. Olbia is just to the west of the Crimean Peninsula. Sapirion failed to take the city, and, on his retreat, was massacred. Meanwhile, Memnon of Thrace, the governor of Thrace, revolted, leaving the regent of Macedonia, Antipater, to focus his attention there. This is what Aegis and his Persian allies had been waiting for. Aegis revolted, and won a battle against a Macedonian general, allowing him to link up with his allies from Elis, Achaea, and Arcadia. However, Megalopolis, a city in Arcadia, was very much anti-Spartan, leading Aegis to besiege the city, which, naturally, alarmed the Macedonians. To prevent himself being at war on two fronts, Antipater pardoned Memnon, allowing him to remain governor in Thrace, something Memnon agreed to. Alexander sent funds to Antipater, which were used to recruit mercenaries, and Antipater marched south to confront Aegis at Megalopolis. Antipater had the larger force of 40,000, with Aegis having only 30,000. Antipater was able to defeat the rebels, leaving Aegis to retreat to Sparta, but Antipater attacked en route, and Aegis fought, allowing his men to retreat. The Aegis Revolt was over. Well, that was quick, partly because Plutarch and Arian don't talk about the revolt, and I've struggled to piece that hopefully accurate narrative together, though mostly because it was quite minor in the grand scheme of things. That is pretty much it for the story in Greece, at least for quite a while. Pharnabasis was still at large, but his territory would revolt and he would be captured, only to escape in what I think was 331. He then vanishes for a while. We assume he surrendered to Alexander. He ends up fighting in the wars following Alexander's death. If you've enjoyed today's episode, remember to visit us online, thehistoryofpodcast.com, facebook.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast, twitter.com forward slash thehistoryofpod, youtube.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast, and thehistoryofpodcast at gmail.com. Next week, the podcast schedule will change, as the summer is ending, and I shall have university work to do. From next week onwards, Alexander will be released on Wednesdays, while Hannibal and Arab Spring will alternate on Sundays. So, I'll see you next Wednesday, when we cover Alexander's greatest battle, Gaugamela. <laughs>